Hello everyone. Today I welcome board certified neurologist Dr. Marwa Casey to the podcast where we're going to be discussing the most up-to-date information on COVID vaccines and COVID boosters. Most importantly, we're going to discuss how all of that information relates to the lives of people living with MS in particular. Dr. Casey, an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, focuses her practice on caring for people with MS and other neuroimmune conditions. She teaches Cedars-Sinai neurology residents in both inpatient and outpatient settings and assists with the MS Fellowship. She's won multiple teaching awards, including the A.B. Baker Teacher Recognition Award from the American Academy of Neurology. She's active in research and has several publications on the diagnosis and misdiagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Her works include developing novel tools to more quickly and accurately diagnose MS. She can be found on Instagram at the MSMD and on YouTube where she provides in a quick and concise way, that's what I love about her, all the latest in MS research as well as tips for living well with MS. Links to both of those are gonna be found in the episode notes. I've really been looking forward to this interview because there's so much information out there and the changing rep- recommendations come so fast and furious these days that sometimes it's hard to, to clearly break it all down. But in this episode, Dr. Casey and I cover not only the most commonly asked questions, but also questions that you might be curious about, but they're just not often discussed anywhere. Questions like, how were they able to whip this vaccine up in record time when vaccines in the past have taken years to develop? Or how do you know if you've had a, quote, good response to the vaccine? Um, We even cover the latest on mixing and matching vaccine brands. So there's that and so much more coming up in this episode of the MS Gym Podcast. Here we go. Dr. Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you're super busy. We're going to try to knock out as many questions and answers as we can during our time together. Um, So welcome. Thank you so much, Brooke, for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk about COVID. It's constantly, you know, the, the situation is so fluid. On any given day, there could be three new updates to the situation or something that yesterday was true is now not true, or something that they recommended yesterday, now they're not recommending. So I'm hoping you're gonna help us all break it down. And I'm gonna start with some basic questions and then we'll dig into some things. And then I'm gonna ask you um, about an educational project that you're working on that I hope that you'll share with us. But my very first question is, because with COVID, you know, people that they consider at higher risk are people with underlying condition. Would MS be considered on its own an underlying condition? Just having MS. Yeah, just having MS without any of the treatments um, kind of complicating that. No, it's a really, really good question. And this is something we were closely watching at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, theoretically, we did not think that having MS alone would increase somebody's risk of having more severe outcomes with COVID. Um, it certainly doesn't increase someone's chance of catching COVID, right? But the question is really, does, does it make it more severe if you do happen to catch it? And uh, the answer is no. We have the data now to show that people with MS are not at more risk of having worse outcomes like being hospitalized or God forbid death if they happen to catch COVID. And the reason that we didn't think this was going to be an issue in the first place is just the background knowledge of what MS really is. 
it is not an immune suppressed condition, right? So really what MS is, is an imbalance in the immune system. Some certain types of cells are too active, others are not active enough. So the immune system is wildly complicated. And I feel like the more I learn about it, the more confused I become sometimes. But it's not that the not that the immune system is overly aggressive, which is sometimes what it's overly simplified to, to be described as, is MS is an overaggressive immune system. And it's not a weak immune system either. It's just an imbalanced one. And that imbalance doesn't affect how somebody fights uh, a virus like COVID. So we didn't think it was going to be a huge issue. We were watching it very closely. And it turns out that people with MS are not at more risk for having severe outcomes uh, from COVID. Now, things like, um, like obesity or high blood pressure, or certainly age, do affect someone's risk of having more severe outcomes with COVID. Okay, wonderful. Now, MS patients who are taking immunotherapy drugs or treatments, which of those, and of course, there's a plethora of drugs and treatments that are available now that any given MS patient might be on, which of those patients need to be mindful of their risks. And we're also gonna talk about the timing of their infusions or whatever their uh, immunosuppressive therapy is, how that affects their whole risk level. So which patients would you consider at higher risk due to immunosuppression from a treatment, an MS treatment? So you, you said it all right there, is that the people who are at higher risk are the people on the immunosuppressive medication specifically. The good news is that most MS medications are not immune suppressants. So things like the platform therapies, like Copaxone, Rebif, for example, a lot of the oral therapies like Tecfidera, Vumerity, um, they're not immune suppressants. They just try to rebalance that imbalanced immune system that we just mentioned, which is the cause of MS. And they don't take away any cells from the immune system. They leave them all there and intact and functioning. And so when that immune system sees an attacker like a virus like COVID, it's able to, to still mount that response and still fight off the virus, just like anyone who wasn't taking those medications. So those uh, medications, especially the older ones we've been using for a long time, don't seem to make anyone uh, more vulnerable to COVID if they happen to catch it. Now, the ones that do make somebody more vulnerable are the immune suppressants. So the most common ones that we use in MS are Ocrevus, Q-Symptom, and then a little less studied, but still theoretically high risk are things like uh, Lemtrada and Mavenclad, and really anything that takes away any of the cells of the immune system like these medications do. Uh, like I mentioned, the ones that are really the most studied are, are really Ocrevus, actually, because Q-Symptom came out. Um, just over a year ago, but they work the same way, which is why I'm lumping them in together as far as risk and what we know about it. Um, there's just not as many people on Lemtrada, um, even clad and things like that. So those haven't been as, as fully studied, but some of the data on, Co on Ocrevus that started to come out um, uh, towards the end of last year is that people on this medication are at a four times increased risk of being hospitalized should they happen to catch COVID. So in my mind, those medications, Ocrevus, Kesimpta, and then Rituxan, which is a close co uh, cousin of Ocrevus that we use off-label for MS, those are the people who, who are at a little bit of a higher risk of having worse outcomes with COVID. What about Tysabri? Tysabri doesn't seem to be an issue. Okay. So, uh, and we, we didn't really think it was going to be based on the way that Tysabri works. So Tysabri is almost like, um, like a bouncer at a velvet rope, with that velvet rope being the the barrier between the blood where all the bad immune cells are 
mm-hmm. and the nervous system where the brain and spinal cord sit. And, and so what happens in MS is those bad cells come from the blood and they go into the nervous system and they attack the brain and the spinal cord. And there is a barrier there. It's called the blood brain barrier that protects the nervous system from the blood. Um, but it's not a completely impenetrable barrier. Uh, so what, what Ty Sabri does is it kind of strengthens the barrier. Like I said, it acts like a bouncer at this velvet rope blood brain barrier, and it stops a lot of those bad cells from getting from the blood into the brain and, and causing the damage that is MS. But all the immune cells that are normally in the blood are still there. They're still able to, to fight viruses when they come into the body. So Ty Sabri does not seem to increase somebody's risk of having worse COVID. Okay. Now, let's say somebody is on Ocrevus and they're due to have their infusion within the next week or so. Should they be mindful of when they're having that done? And should they think twice about when they're getting their vaccine or a booster, which we're going to talk about boosters in a little bit, but can they just go ahead, get their infusion, get the vaccine, no worries, or should they be thinking a little more into it before they do that? So there's, there's two questions here. One is the safety question. So is does getting the vaccine and the infusion at the same time make either more uh, dangerous and the, or risky? And the short answer is absolutely not. You can get both on the same day and be perfectly fine. So uh, what we're talking about here is not safety. What we're really getting at is the efficacy. So okay. if we get the vaccine and the infusion too close together, does that diminish the efficacy of either? It doesn't affect the efficacy of the ocrevus, so that you can get at any time. We're not too worried about it. But what it does do is it significantly decreases the efficacy of the vaccine. So you're just not going to get as much bang for your buck. It's almost like you maybe didn't even get vaccinated if you get them too close together. Really? So yeah, yeah. So to your point, we really do have to be mindful of the timing of the two together. And again, not because we're worried that that there's going to be any safety risk, but because we really want to get the most out of that vaccine that we can. So then the next question is going to be, well, what is the sweet spot? What is the right. timing? Exactly. Right? It is, it is hard to hit for a lot of people, uh, because especially when the vaccines first came out, it was like, get it as you can, right? Like as soon yes. as you can, we'd all been living through this pandemic. Most of us ran out and got the very first appointment we could. So, uh, what we saw is that people who get them too close together, don't have a great response to the vaccine. And it gets very complicated. I have a long YouTube video explaining this because it is such, so there's so many nuances as to uh, how we have studied this phenomenon. But there's, there's basically two halves to the immune system, the B cell half and the T cell half. And the B cell half is what the ocrevus affects. It takes out a few of the B cells, not all of them, but a few of them. And um, we need our B cells to form full responses to vaccines. So uh, that, that's what we're measuring when we do a blood test for antibodies to the COVID vaccine. I don't know if you've heard about people getting an antibody tests to see yes. how well they did to the vaccine. So really all you're measuring is that B cell half. Now the T cell half of the story is much harder to measure. You need like a dedicated immunology lab, it's, it's expensive. And so that's, that's rarely measured. But the T cell half in people getting ocrevus is perfectly intact. We haven't really touched it or affected it. And so that half is working great. We mm-hmm. just can't measure it with a blood test. So I say all that to say, take this with a grain of salt because we're not actually measuring the full effect of the vaccine in most people. Um, but again, I have a YouTube explaining some studies that did have access to that T cell um, lab and what that showed. But um, we'll the, definitely, the, we'll share a link to that in the episode yeah, notes. Yeah, because I did, so I did nuanced. see that. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. And then that few studies have just very recently come out with actual numbers, which is always nice to see mm-hmm. um, to shore up the theory that we have. So the, the ideal timing for the B cells at least comes down to 
probably around four or five months after the last ocrevus infusion. Okay. So if you get ocrevus infusion on day one, waiting about four or five months, then getting the COVID vaccine. And then really we want to give it at least, uh, definitely at least two weeks, but ideally four weeks before you get your next ocrevus infusion. Okay. Okay. So um, some of this comes from ocrevus studies specifically, uh, post-COVID, I mean, and some of it comes from ocrevus studies before the pandemic, before COVID was even a thing. They did a study on flu, tetanus, and pneumonia vaccines, and they, they tried to figure this out of, of do people even respond to vaccines. They didn't tell us what the sweet spot was, though. They just took all people who were three or more months past their last ocrevus infusion, vaccinated them, and saw that what their response was. And they had a decent response to these vaccines, but not the same as somebody who wasn't on Ocrevus. So the big takeaway from that is if you wait at least three months and get your vaccine for whatever it is, you should have a decent response, but just expect that it won't be as full as somebody who's not on Ocrevus. And so that's where that three month mark came from that we were using for a long time. There's a little bit more data now that shows that if you can really wait till the four month mark or even the five month mark, you'll have probably have a better response to the COVID vaccine. But again, like I mentioned up front, it's, that's not always possible. We're trying to get people vaccinated and we're trying to get them protected as soon as possible. So really after three months, ideally around four or five months is the sweet spot to try to get your vaccine for the maximal benefit. Um, but again, keep in mind that even if you do get an antibody blood test after that and you don't have any antibodies, there's still this other half of your immune system that we're not measuring that could still be protecting you. Okay. The question I then get is, well, well, I measured my antibodies and they're zero. Like Dr. Casey, I did everything right. I did the timing perfectly. It's still zero. What's going on? Am I protected? Did I mess it up somehow? Did the vaccine not work? Um, and the short answer is the vaccine still work. It is still very much worthwhile to get it, but our tools just aren't good enough to measure um, some of the response that you're getting. And unlike the flu vaccine, for example, which is not that great, to be honest, especially this year, you know, they kind of try to design it and it's not always super accurate. The COVID vaccines are fantastic. They are highly, highly effective. So even if you get part of the response, you're still getting a lot of protection and it's definitely still worthwhile doing it. Do you foresee in the future, for instance, the flu vaccine, am I correct in saying that every year the flu vaccine is kind of re-engineered based on whatever variants of the flu have come up in the prior year, something like that? Yeah. Do you, yeah, do you foresee I, them doing the same with COVID as the years go by? I do. I do. Tweaking I, it I, for Delta, tweaking it for, you know, yeah. whatever the next name of the next variant is. Right. No, I, I do think that. And there's some, some doctors who are predicting that COVID is going to go away entirely. I think if we had been really, really good about everyone getting vaccinated quickly, maybe that would have been a possibility and we would have wiped it out. But the reality is that there's enough people out there who are still getting COVID and every time somebody new catches COVID, it gives that virus a chance to mutate. Yep. And when it mutates, it creates these new variants, right? So it's, yep. it feels like we're going to go through the entire Greek alphabet of variants. Yes. Um, like and, hurricanes. And your point, <laughs> like, or like hurricanes. And hopefully we don't come back to the beginning like they do with hurricanes. Yes. But uh, to your point, yeah, every time, every time this happens, our, our vaccines 
are great against some of them because it looks close enough to the original variants of COVID that the vaccine still works and our immune system still recognizes it as COVID. But there will come a point where it mutates to the point where our immune system no longer recognizes that as COVID that it was vaccinated to and can't mount that immune response. And so, um, yeah, this is why we, we change our, our flu vaccine every year and try to hit it. And I think the flu vaccine is like redone based on some small place in India where they get flu earlier on than everybody else. And so they try to, to predict based on right. that what the variant is going to be. And some years they hit it and some years they don't quite hit it. It still gives you some protection, but it's not always fantastic. But that's what made the COVID vaccine so effective is one, this mRNA technology um, and getting boot in two doses, you know, especially with the Pfizer and Moderna, but also because they designed it based on the exact DNA of COVID that was provided by Wuhan way back in January, 2020. They were able to quickly plug that into their vaccine technology and design one exactly for the types of COVID that were out at that point. But as it keeps mutating, I do think they're gonna they're gonna vary the vaccine year to year. And and from my understanding, it's not too hard to do. You have a template, you just plug in the new DNA data for the new variants and you're able to create a new, more accurate vaccine for that variant. Interesting. Do you have any advice for people, especially here in the US as we head into flu season? What if you want to get a COVID vaccine and a flu vaccine? Yeah, this has been coming up a lot for my patients. I always, around this time, I'm having a lot of conversations about flu vaccines regardless. So it's not too different for me to plug in COVID vaccine, although now there's a lot of misinformation about there about the COVID vaccine and, and kind of political bent to it that I never really had to deal with for flu vaccines. So that right. definitely is a, a new angle, um, but they can now be given at the same time. Okay. So uh, when the, the COVID vaccine first came out, they said, oh, leave two weeks between COVID and any other vaccine, just because we didn't know a lot about it. There have been a few thousand people in the trials, but you know, not the billions that have now of doses that have now been administered. So now we have enough data to know that it's safe to give at the same time as other vaccines. So for most of my patients, I'll say, oh, I'll talk to them about their either their third dose or their booster of COVID and say, hey, while you're there, get your flu shot too. just do a one, two. And especially for people who have to time these vaccines with ocrevus infusions, as we were talking about, it's mm -hmm. much easier to just do the both at the same time and, and get it done. Okay. Okay. Um, before we move on, well, actually, I wanted to ask you in your own patients, what types of side effects are you seeing in your patients and especially the difference between the first dose and the second dose? And, and this is excluding booster. This is just yeah. first and second dose, whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, John, yeah. Johnson and Johnson was single, but what yeah, are you so seeing? In the, in the trials, what they saw is that people under 55 had kind of like flu-like symptoms, like a fever or things like that, especially to the second dose. I'm not seeing that too much in my patients. Um, I'll share that I literally have had the worst side effects of anyone I know to the vaccines, including <laughs> all of my patients. Um, I, I had a little bit of an allergic reaction to the first one. Thankfully it was pretty mild. And I saw an allergist and he just told me what meds to take before my second dose. Cause I really wanted to get my second dose. Um, and then with the second one, I had, you know, horrible, like fevers, chills, had to take Tylenol around the clock and then a headache that lasted for a few days afterwards. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I haven't seen that many side effects in my patients. I personally experienced this. So I have sympathy for everyone who has, Yeah. uh, but what I tell my patients is they say, well, can I, especially people getting Tysabri, they're like, oh, should I time it? I was like, you can, you can do both at the same time. It doesn't matter. But what I do tell them just based on my personal experience is that 
don't schedule your Tysabri for the day after your second dose. Um, yeah. Because just in case you have a fever, you won't pass the COVID screening. You know, they screen everyone for a fever when you go in. So, or you'll yeah. just feel so terrible. You won't want to get out of bed and go into the infusion center right. to get your, your infusion. So just based on the side effect, which again, it's not dangerous. It's about a day or two of feeling crummy. And then, then you're, you're protected and, and hopefully won't have the days, weeks, or months of those horrible symptoms. Should you happen to catch COVID God forbid, um, but, but it, it would be kind of awful to have to go sit for your Tysabri while you're having those symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. Now, before we get to the booster, I want to know about this educational project that you're working on. Yeah, so this is a, an online course. It's called Conquer MS, and it is for people who, either people who have MS or people who love them and want to learn more about MS. And it really came out of my frustration with having 45 to 60 minutes with a new patient. And that's actually pretty generous uh, for, for a lot of neurology clinics. Um, but, you know, I would, I would diagnose somebody with MS and we would talk about the diagnosis. We would start talking about treatments. You know, I would answer questions they had, but then they, then they would leave and they'd say, well, well where else can I go for information? Um, and there's some phenomenal podcasts like yours. You know, I have an Instagram and a YouTube. A lot of us are trying but when you're brand new to MS and you don't even know where to start, it can be hugely overwhelming. And all I wanted to do was to sit with them and maybe, maybe hold their hand while they cry a little bit. And then, and then move on to talking about, um, how, how people get MS, who's at risk. They usually have questions about risk to their kids, talking about therapies, talking about a relapse, what even is a relapse? Um, when do I call my doctor talking about lifestyle stuff, wellness stuff, like, like diet and exercise and symptom management, like spasticity, sleep, you know, fatigue, I could go on, right? All of it. Yeah. All of it, all of it, all the stuff they want to know, but one, we don't have time Two, when you get that diagnosis, or even if you're new to MS, it's so overwhelming that I don't know if they hear anything that I'm saying yeah. after that it's very human for all of us to just kind of shut down after that and go into ourselves. And so I could talk to them forever, but either they, they probably don't hear it. If yeah. they do, they don't process it very well. And they forget all the questions that they want yep. to ask in that moment. So, so what I, what I've done is I've compiled all those questions that they do sometimes think to ask, or they come back and ask me later, or they'll message me later that night. Cause then they right. finally have time to process and think of it. Right. And, and I, I created a course that you can go through at your own time, um, at your own pace that will really cover all the basics. And it's not hundreds of hours of me sharing every last thing I know about MS. We're not trying to turn you into an MS physician. Uh, certainly that's way too overwhelming, but it is the need to know key information that patients ask me for time and again, all in one place that you can just go through from start to finish. And where can people find this or, or it's a work in progress? It is, it is almost finished. It's definitely a, a labor of love and it's taken me a lot of time. Although, like I said, the easiest part was knowing the questions to answer because I've you know, taken probably thousands of people through this process at this point. Um, but it is called Conquer MS. It will be on Teachable for now. There's an interest form. All you do is put your name and email address in it and then you'll be one of the first people to know when the course launches, um, hopefully in the next few weeks. So I can certainly share that link with you if you want. Yes, um, and we'll put it in us. the episode notes. That'd be fantastic. It sounds like something that so many of us wish we had in the beginning, uh, because like you said, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot of information. And some of the things that you might tell people may never happen to them at all. But it'd be nice to have a place right. to keep going back to and re-listening. And that would be great. Absolutely. Thank That'd you. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Now let's talk about that booster. Yes. First of all, do you recommend that MS patients who have already had 
a first, their first and second dose of whatever brand have a booster. So uh, let's talk about this because again, it's, I feel like I keep saying it's nuanced, but it is, it's yes. complicated. Yes. So, so there's, I think there's um, a couple of different points here. One is the third dose versus the booster. And this is, okay. this is really semantics um, because you go to the pharmacy, they're going to give you the, the same thing, right? It's not a different medication. It's not designed differently other than Moderna, where you're going to get a full dose for the third dose versus a half for the booster. It's okay. the same thing. It's the same thing but the difference is in why you're getting it. Okay. So the third dose was designed for people who are on immune suppressing medications or have a weakened immune system who didn't mount a full dose to a full response to the first two doses of Pfizer or Moderna. So, right. Those are two dose series. If you have a normal immune system or you're not an immune suppressant, you take two doses, you're good, right? You get the full response. That's the vaccine course. But there are people, for example, people on Ocrevus, as we mentioned, who don't have the full response to the first two doses. And so a third dose was introduced back in August and approved to get them to the same place the rest of us got to with two doses. So, and so when you say doses, same gonna... response, you are yeah. talking about the same antibody response, the same number of antibodies created. Same number, well, the, the antibodies on the B cell half and the T cell response, yeah. So it's it's it may not get them to that exact point. There's not a lot of data on third dose in these immune suppressants at this point, but that was the theory behind it. That's why they approved it, is to try to let those people catch up to the rest of us by instead of taking two doses, taking three doses. And the only so, way to find out if you've had an appropriate response is through blood work? Well, it's it's there really is no great way, honestly, outside of a research study to find out. And so it's almost assumed that you didn't have a full response okay. and okay. you just go get it if you're on these medications. So the way that they approved it was, it really is meant for people on immune suppressants, but they approved it for anyone with any immune condition. So even my yeah. patients on Tecfidera, I was like, well, if you really want, you can go get one. I don't think yeah. you need one, but you're right. technically eligible. And, and this one has nothing to do with the timing. So you don't have to wait six months. You don't have to wait eight months because it's not about waning immunity over time. It's not about like a lessening of the immunity as it wears off. It's really about getting you the full initial response to the vaccine. So okay. um, you can get the third dose as soon as, as four weeks after your second dose. You can take them in a row, one, two, three, um, or, or any time after that. So when it came out, when it was approved in August, then into September, a lot of my patients who are on Ocrevus, I was advising them on when to go for their third dose, even before the boosters have been approved and, and authorized. Now, so, uh, the, the booster. Okay, let's go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so the booster, right? So that's the yeah. third dose, yeah. which I think is super relevant to people living with MS because a lot of them on these medications needed a third dose. Um, and now, now talking about the booster. So the booster is for people who got vaccinated months ago and that immunity is wearing off. Okay. So when we get vaccinated, uh, it doesn't always last forever. Some of them do, right? Some of them we get in childhood and then we don't need to do again. But some like the flu, we need to get every year because it, it wears off and then there's variants. Um, so, so this is part of what they're doing with COVID. And with COVID natural immunity, meaning if you have COVID, that immunity only lasts for, for a few months. I think around three was around the number they were working with. So the vaccine immunity lasts longer than that, um, but it doesn't last forever, especially because we're just now introducing our immune systems to COVID. It's a brand new thing. So what they are recommending the booster for is people who got vaccinated with Pfizer and Moderna more than six months ago are, are, and are, are at some sort of higher risk. So either they're older, over 65, they're immune suppressed, or they have a high risk job, for example, people working in healthcare. 
Right. For Johnson and Johnson, they approved a booster as just a second dose, really, because if you look at the efficacy for Pfizer and Moderna, they do outperform Johnson and Johnson a little bit. And I think that's just because they had two doses. They had an edge on Johnson and Johnson, which was just one dose. Yeah. So the Johnson and Johnson, it's not necessarily for, for waning, but it's really to, to kind of shore up that first dose and to provide support and, and make it a two dose series. And I think, I think you mentioned the Moderna booster is only a half dose mm-hmm. of the, is it half the dose of the initial two? Right. Right. And that's because the Moderna dose itself initially was, was, I think was a little higher. Now I'm, I'm not a, an immunologist as a vaccine specialist specifically, <laughs> but, but this is my understanding is uh, the Moderna was just dosed higher. People, people's immunity was not waning as much. We saw more breakthrough cases with Pfizer yeah. with the Delta surge than we did with Moderna. And, and it turns out that's just because people just got more Moderna dose when they were initially vaccinated. Um, and, and that turned out not to be important until we saw people's immunity wearing off from the initial courses. And that's when we all kind of suddenly realized that, that the Moderna had been dosed higher. So you just don't need as much of it, which is why they approved it a half dose. Well, so that brings me to the more, more recently in the last couple of weeks, the mixing and matching of different brands. So let's say you had the first and second dose of Pfizer and you're reading all this stuff online. You're like, well, Moderna's stronger. It's more, you know, efficient. And um, so I want to get a Moderna booster. What do you have to say to people who, or let's just say you had two Moderna and your particular pharmacy only has Pfizer boosters available. You know, maybe it's just a matter of availability instead of choice. What do you have to say to the mixing and matching of those? So as far as choice, I don't think there's a big uh, difference between them. They were both designed based on the same information that came out of Wuhan initially. They were using the same technology. So I don't think that I would recommend that they choose one over the other, especially because the Moderna is now given it a half dose. So it's not like it's more powerful than Pfizer. Right. They've adjusted for that. Uh, the reason that this was approved, I believe, is for the convenience so some pharmacies only offer one, sometimes there's supply of one and not the other at different times. And so it was just a, a roadblock that had prevented people from getting certain vaccines that they removed because there's no theoretical difference between the two. There's no big reason they should interact in a bad way with each other if you get mix and match. And so what they're saying basically is they're, they're very similar and it's okay to mix and match because they work the same way and, and you can just get whichever one is convenient. But I don't know of a strategy based on mixing and matching to get you better immunity. All right. I'm just going to touch on this. I'll be honest. It's partly my own curiosity that I've had all along with regard to the vaccine. And I've seen the question a million times online, but I, Brooks, like want to know. And hopefully there'll be other people just waiting for the answer. In the past, other vaccines, whether it's polio or German measles or chicken pox or whatever, took X amount of years to create and bring to market. And here we are, we have a pandemic, this deadly disease, and boom, we were able to design it, manufacture it, and bring it to market in record time. How were they able to do that? And why can't they do that for every vaccine? And I know that there's or, a lot of every drug, talk. right? Right, exactly. And I said yeah. that to somebody yesterday. I'm like, yeah, or any MS drug. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but what I know there are many moving parts to, 
your potential answer, but um, how did that happen? Was it just that they were able to cut through the red tape because they, was it part red tape? Was it part funding? You know, funding that typically isn't there, was there? Um, how, and because let's be honest, you think, oh, we'll just whip up a, va a vaccine and people are like, uh, how do we know that's as effective as the one that took 10 years to bring to market? You know what I'm saying? I do. I do. And I love this question because this is my biggest question before I personally went and got vaccinated, which was end of December, 2020. I, you know, I ran as soon as they offered it to me to get vaccinated. But before I did, this was the question that I really wanted to answer for myself. I had read the trials, the Pfizer Moderna trials. They had several tens of thousands of people in both those trials. I knew the safety data looked great, but um, this was the one thing nagging in the back of my mind because in the MS world, we know it takes 10 years to get it from an idea to the bench through mouse studies through, and then there's th three phases, phase one, two, and three of drug studies. And then you really have to study an MS drug for two years. That's the market standard in a trial before you can even collect safety data and submit it to the FDA for approval. And that takes years. So, so that's the, that's the world I was coming from, right. And the, the MS world and how long that takes. And this, this had come, they'd whipped it up in a few months and it was tried and emergency with authorization. So totally understand this question. And this is one that I've thought about a lot. Um, and again, uh, there's a lot of different facets to the answer, some of which you touched on already. So one of the things, the, one of the reasons they were able to do this quickly is that they've been working on the technology for a couple of decades. So I never really heard a lot about mRNA vaccines, but it's not a new thing. They've been working on it for a long time. So they were ready to go. They had the technology in place. And the other part is that it was a a global pandemic that brought the world to a screeching halt. And, you know, you think about something like MS, it is very important to several of us, but not the whole world, right? MS has not brought the world to a screeching halt. It's brought some people's worlds to a screeching halt, but not the entire globe. And so you suddenly had everybody's attention and, and everybody's cooperation. You know, governments wanted to work together. China was sharing DNA information for this virus immediately and get, well, not immediately. There's, you know, some <laughs> stuff about, uh, we won't get into the politics of what happened this first couple of months. Um, but, but soon, you know, they were sharing the information that it would take. And so they had the technology ready. They suddenly had the information that it would take to plug into this technology and create a vaccine. And they were ready to start the trials like March of 2020, which is remarkable, right? Just because the red tape was gone. Governments were communicating, scientists were communicating quickly. And because it was so critical, we're not always putting the stop gaps that are, are really there for a reason. They're there to protect bad information and bad science from getting out there. But again, it's a global pandemic. We gotta go, we gotta move, right? We don't have time for our usual stop checks. Um, so then the, the other part of that that was really important for me to understand is that with MS medications, for example, it takes a long time for these potential bad outcomes to come to the surface. And it takes a lot of people in the, on the study, uh, in the studying the drugs. So for example, infections or potential cancers, it takes years for those things to come to the surface and for us to see that. Right. Vaccine bad outcomes typically happen within the first 24 hours after a vaccine and always, always, always within the first two months after a vaccine. Interesting. So instead of two plus years for MS drugs, we really have a total max of two months for vaccines. And that is why the FDA didn't even consider the emergency use authorization until these drug companies have two months of safety data on the vaccine. Okay. They finished their trials early fall. 
they, they, they had, you know, at least two months of monitoring on everyone in the trial, and then they were able to submit their safety data to the FDA for, for a review. And so that really helped me to feel good about going in to get it is that, you know, you don't have vaccine injury two or three years after the vaccine, right? Anything bad that we're going to see is going to happen in those first two months. So especially now at this point where literally billions of doses have been administered of these vaccines um, over, you know, over a year um, for some of them, that anything bad that we were going to see, we have seen already. And, and there's, you know, infinitely small, 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 bad adverse events that are happening with these vaccines. So the red tape was gone. Information was shared quickly. It went to the top of the pile for approval, right? Usually you have to get in line. There's a lot of drugs ahead of you for approval. Um, so all the red tape was cut, people were communicating and it's a vaccine. It's not like an MS medication where we have to watch carefully for over two years to figure out if something bad is gonna happen. So both the, the science of it and the bureaucracy of it all fell in line to get this approved and out to people as quickly as possible. So the safety, the safety methods were the same. The speed in which it was developed is what changed. Exactly. So exactly. it's not and like any anything fell through the cracks as far as all the steps that they typically would go through for a vaccine. Like they still exactly. had to go through all of those. They weren't shortened up. They were sped up. They were sped up. A lot of the roadblocks that are there, mainly just because there's a lot of other competing drugs coming right. at the same time, those were taken away. And, and the technology was there and it just helped that it's a vaccine. And we don't need to study vaccines for more than two months typically to see anything bad that's going to happen. Like I mentioned, it's usually like the first day, yeah. that you know, if something's going to happen, usually the first few days really, and then definitely within the first two months. So there's a lot of different things, but and that's why I said, I felt good about going to get it after kind of teaching myself all this stuff. Because, right. um, because I also was like, what? It usually takes this years to yes. do what did they have? What corners did they have to cut? To right. Get exactly. But, yeah. But, but, but they didn't. Yeah, they, they really didn't. This is just how fast science can work when it really needs to. And I got emotional when I went to get my first shot. I really did because of that realization that this is what science can do. This is the yes. power of science. It's exciting. It's so exciting and it's awe-inspiring. And, and this is just what happens when, when everyone around the world comes together to fight a common enemy. I'd and like so to that, think it sets the bar for, for the future of vaccine yeah. approval, uh, pandemic or not. You know, I, I'd like to think it sets the bar for a lot of different, you know, not maybe not just vaccines. Now that people can see what can happen when everything falls into place more quickly. Um, right. so that's real. I, now I feel so relieved. <laughs> I, I mean, because I, I waited because, um, I talked to my neurologist about it. This would have been a year ago and he wanted me to wait just a little. That was, I had HSCT done. So I uh -huh. had the transplant history. I also had yeah. a history of shingles and things uh -huh. like that, but otherwise I, I don't take any MS drugs anymore, but I, you know, I still have symptoms. But uh, he said, let's just wait till I get a little more feedback. And I was cool with that. I was totally cool with that. Well, then as time went on, I contacted him. I'm like, I'm like, okay, can I do it? And he's like, totally, you know, and he told me the same thing that you had about his patients. Only a couple had seen severe side effects and se severe. I don't mean like hospitalization severe, just like flu, fever, yeah. you know, fatigue, so I went ahead with it, but I still, I had that question in the back of my mind as they're giving it to me. It's like, 
I hope this isn't, like you said, shortcuts weren't taken or whatever. So I feel much more at ease about the entire vaccine thing, given the information that you just provided. So I appreciate that. Do you, have you read anything or do you have your own feelings about how long you think we'll have to function at the level of, I don't even know what word to use, at the, the kind of fear level that we currently have, how, how long do you, how long are we, is this going on? <laughs> it's like, how, do you, know. Think, you know, when will, when do you think we'll be able to, to just, it, it'll be part of our lives, which it already is, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it won't be one that we are so frantic about every single day that we're not tuning mm-hmm. in to the news every single day to see what the numbers are that the numbers will not be running, you know, in the banners of all the news stations as far as deaths and new cases and um, where that won't happen anymore. And it'll just be, you know, just like flu numbers, you know, flu is up this year, COVID's up this year, you know. I I don't know if there's a single answer to that because what I've been reading has very different theories from different people. And it's going to just depend on a lot of things. I think one is the variance as we discussed Two is people's willingness to get vaccinated and to wear masks and to kind of try to stop the flow or the, the rates, uh, you know, here in LA, our rates are, are, are very low, but then, you know, I was talking to my husband who was telling me that, that 1500 people are dying still. And, and, and the rates in, in North Dakota are terrible. And so um, we're talking about why that might be that the surge is happening in different parts of the country at different times. And, what I tell my patients is I don't know when this is going to be over and I want to try to help you get back to as much of a normal life as possible. I have the rare introvert who's very happy that this is still going on and doesn't want to leave their house. That conversation ends quickly and that's fine. I'm happy for them that there's a silver lining, but most people are scared. Yeah. uh, But, but recognizing that this isn't going away anytime soon. And so that's kind of the advice I give them is we need to figure out how to get you back to, to what you want to do whether it's traveling to see family they haven't seen in a long time and and really need to reconnect with, whether it's figuring out how to get back into the office or how to rejoin their sports teams. You know, there's something that's really near and dear to everybody that they've, a lot of them have had to give up for this pandemic. And I think it's time that they they stop having to completely make these sacrifices because if this was going to end by the end of the year and I say, okay, January, 2022, we're good. Just right. hang on until then. And right. that's how we were functioning the first, the first, at least yes. for me, like the first year, honestly, is that's how yes. I was functioning is just hold on, just hold on for the summer, just hold on for the vaccines. Yes. And, and every time I was let down and yes. kind of crushed, <laughs> especially because yes. I have a little baby at home and I, I don't, yes. I, I have, I have a vulnerable person in my house. Thank you. And a lot of people have vulnerable people in their house that they're worried about, or they're vulnerable themselves. Yes. And, and at this point, I don't think we can function that way anymore. I don't think we can just hold on for the next milestone that never seems to really come. Right. So, um, I'm hopeful that it will become rote, as you mentioned, like just like flu season, COVID season, whatever we will get there eventually, but I have become more of a realist. I think about when that's going to be. Um, especially having had my heart broken over and over about, you know, just yes. wait for such and such milestone. Yes. So um, I think that we can, we can be optimistic, but at the same time, we really have to start figuring out how we can safely get back to the things that are important to us that we may have been sacrificing for the last year and a half. Well, Dr. Casey, I cannot thank you enough. This has been fantastic. 
because it's kind of all the questions all in one conversation, you know, as, as we end this conversation, I'm going to ask one more question. What are your thoughts on mask usage right now, today, October 25th, 2021? So I, I do think it's still very, very important because vaccines have certainly decreased the severity of COVID and our hospitals are less burdened and it's turned it from potentially devastating fatal illness to something you can just recover from at home if you happen to catch it. But masks are still very important as part of our toolbox, especially in preventing person-to-person spread. And like I mentioned, I have an unvaccinated little person at home. So I'm still, despite me being triple vaccined at the vaxxed at this point, I'm still worried that I may catch it, have a very mild or even asymptomatic course, but still be able to pass it on to my little person or um, just being able to take her out in the world, right? So there are people out there who are, who are too young to be vaccinated or who are immune suppressed and their vaccines just didn't work very well. And so especially for those people, I think it is important to use the mask as part of our toolbox, which includes vaccines, includes being outside as much as possible for our events. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful, honestly, that I live in LA and, and masks are just very normal here and you're not going indoors in places where people have their masks off unless it's a restaurant. So I think masks are important. They're not the only important thing, right? Vaccines are very important too, but it's all part of a multi-tier effect or multi-tier effort, excuse me, to, to try to prevent this thing from spreading. And especially to our, our most vulnerable people who either can't get vaccinated or didn't have a great response to the vaccine. Wonderful. Dr. Casey, thank you so, so much for coming on today. Um, thank you for I'm having me. Looking forward to the completion of your project. Um, I you. think, and like you said, please provide us with the links to that and people can sign up and they'll know when it's ready to go. We also, I'm going to put a link to your YouTube channel and a link to your uh, Instagram, which I love your Instagram. And I just, I can't thank you enough. Great. Thank you, Brooke. This has been fun. Wonderful. If you'd like to know more about the MS Gym, you can find them at www.themsgym.com, on Instagram, and on Facebook. If you'd like to know what I've been up to lately, you can find me on Instagram or at www.brookslick.com. See you on the next episode.